Hopefully you have a Bible. Turn to John chapter 16. If you don't, that's okay. We have Bibles for you. They're in the back. Um, as we dismiss the kids in a moment, you can go back there and grab yourself a Bible. If you don't have one, please keep it. Um, that's our gift to you. We'd like to have the Word of God in, in the hands of God, God's people and anyone who's interested in learning more about the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. So we're in John chapter 16. We're, starting our, we're doing our study together. Um, this is sermon, if you're wondering, this is sermon number 52. Wow, I know. And as I calculated the rest of it, it'll be 76 when it's all done. Uh, I think this, this beats Genesis, uh, but we'll be at 76. So sermon number 60, uh, 52, chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. And I'll read it for you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Number four of one gospel, his name is Jesus. But I have said these things to you, Jesus talking, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going. I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. For, I, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. You will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine, declare it to you. May God add the blessing to the reading of his holy, infallible, trustworthy word this morning. So that's where we are. Kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. We are in John. And to bring context to that reading, if you remember, it is Thursday night. Jesus is talking here to his disciple. It's Thursday night. It's toward the end of the Passion Week that we call. And Jesus and his disciples are in a private room, an upper room. He is gathered at the beginning of this in chapter 13. His 12 together to share and eat of the Passover meal. By now, chapter 16, there's only 11 left. Judas has gone out into the night to betray the Savior. And the rest here, the 11 here, by this time, is either in the upper room. We're not really sure because at the end of chapter 14, it tells us, let us go from here. They may be on their way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, going through the city uh, and toward the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not really sure. But one thing we are sure that we're moments away, possibly an hour or two away, from the arrest, the false trial, the beating, the scourging, and the crucifixion of the Son of God. Jesus has been loving them. Jesus has been encouraging them. Jesus has been teaching this band of 11 who are going to be responsible. He's going to give them this responsibility to be witnesses to the world. He has told them that he is leaving. We've read that in chapter 16, verse 5 and 7. He assures them, though, that as he is going, as he is leaving, he will not leave them as orphans. They will not be on this mission alone. He will come to them again. He will not come to them physically in the long term, but he will come to them spiritually through the, through the work and through the, the, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and when the Spirit is given, there will be more intimacy. And he and his Father will send the Spirit and they will be with them. What I want to do, though, as we get into this text, and I want to take, I don't usually do this, but I want to take a little sidestep for a moment. I've been talking with a lot of you, and I want to talk for about 10 or 15 minutes concerning the nature of God. Particularly, so we're going to put our thinking caps on today, particularly the Trinity. Jesus has been revealing and unfolding some very important truths, truths that are somewhat new, not totally new, you'll see in a minute, about the Trinity, and this is perfect timing, because there's a new movie coming out, and I mentioned this to you already, called The Shack, and people have been saying the most crazy and outlandish things about this movie, about learning about the Trinity. You will not learn, in fact, you will unlearn about the Trinity according to Scripture. 
I'm here to warn you. It doesn't teach you the Trinity. It teaches you something totally different than what the Scriptures say. And it's kind of crazy out there because there are actually some pastors and church leaders that are saying some things about the movie that is just, I just can't even wrap my head around it. For instance, I got one. The Shack, Centerpiece. So the pastor's resource, which is a pretty good book, and it's got Rick Warren on the front cover. I like Rick Warren. I opened it up, and I saw it this week. The Shack, the movie. First thousand pastors receive free tickets. I won't be one of them. Joel Houston, if you know him, he's from Hillsong. I don't know what he's thinking. Quote, the shack, teaching about the Trinity. Perhaps the most profound description of who God is, how he works, and ever been done in film. Hmm. The shack teaches universalism. The shack, the shack teaches that God is not a judge. We'll see that today. The shack teaches that the Trinity, all part, people, persons of the Trinity, we'll talk about that in a minute, become human, that there's no submission within the Trinity. There are so many things in this movie that flatly contradict Scripture. I could do a whole sermon on it. In fact, there is a whole sermon. If you go online, you look at Michael Youssef. Um, he has a culture. Just put his name in and put the shack. It's a great sermon. I'll have it available if you want. Uh, on, on the problem with this, the Bible teaches us about the Trinity. So many things about the movie that is not true. It's not even funny. First thing you need to understand is the nature of God, his being, what we believe as Christian, what we believe the scriptures, we'll, we'll talk about the scriptures in a minute, is that God is one. God is one in essence, three in person. That's why we say Trinity. It's not something that's brand new in the New Testament. You need to know that. The New Testament does not all of a sudden come up with this Trinity, this concept that God is one in essence and three in person. We see it in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And we see the Spirit of God hovering. And then God said, let there be light and created. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. The world. We know from John 1 that Jesus is the Word who became what? Flesh. Colossians tells us that all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, domains, dominions, rulers, authorities were created through Him, Jesus, and for Him. We see the Trinity right there in Genesis 1. Now, it's true that the word Trinity is not found. If you do a concordance study, you'll find not the word Trinity found in Scripture. It began to surface around 2nd AD uh, by Tertullian, who's a, a church father, to express the truth of what God has already taught us in Scripture, especially with Jesus' teaching in John, that God has revealed himself in and through Scripture. It's not a new belief. It's just a new way in the 2nd century of verbalizing what the Scriptures already taught. That's important, because you have Jehovah Witnesses, you have Muslims, oh, the Trinity's not found in the Bible. That's true, but the, but the understanding of what we believe about the Trinity is very clear in Scripture. To say that God exists as a Trinity, to say is that God is one. Now, follow me with me, okay? God is undivided, he's unified, he's one being who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. When we say God is a person, we mean a person has personality, the basic characteristics of intellectual intellect, emotions, a will. God thinks, he feels, he acts. He, he is a being with self-awareness. He is a, he is a being who has self-consciousness. He's, he's self-determination. He tells Moses, Moses says to him, who shall I say sent me? I am. I'm a person. I am who I am, he tells Moses. The Westminster Confession of 1647 summarizes it this way. In the unity of the Godhead, that's the deity, the essence of God, there will be three persons, one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These, end quote. These distinctions are not division within God of his being, but a personal existence within the being of God. And you say, well, I can't totally understand that. Welcome. If you could understand the complete nature of God, you'd be God. There is a mystery in the Trinity. It's okay. Embrace it. But 
understand what the scriptures say about it. There is something you can wrap, we can wrap our head around. It's not a total mystery that we are to completely be, you know, ignorant of. There are some things in scripture that are clear. The Athanasian Creed of the 4th century is something that has been in the church for all those years. It says this, this is what, they're grappling with Jesus' words, they're understanding the nature of God in the early parts of Christianity. He says that we worship one God in Trinity, Trinity in unity, neither confounding or mixing the persons nor dividing the essence. One person of the Father, another the Son, another the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, Son, and the Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty coternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. And for a period of time, we've learned in Scripture, we've seen in John, that God has separate functions and roles temporarily for the purpose of accomplishing something which we see in salvation. But it doesn't change his essence. We've seen this all throughout John. That the Father initiated and planned and sent the Son. The Father sent me. Beloved, he says, this is my Son. Trust him, believe in him. He's my beloved son from heaven. The father planned and sent the son. The son was the one who took on humanity. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 14, and the word became flesh. Jesus takes on a subordinate role while he is on the earth where he dies for our sins. He accomplishes and completes and fulfills our salvation. I only do what the father shows me and does. I obey his commands. And the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son. He applies redemption. He opens our hearts. He illuminates our mind to see the need of salvation. He applies the work of the Father who sent, the Son who died, and the Holy Spirit who empowers and and opens our hearts and applies redemption to the sinner. We've seen that all throughout John. The proof of God being one and three in person is not only in creation. You don't even get past Genesis 2. God said, let us... Make man in our image. You see the plurality of one God, even there. Again, it's it's a mystery, but that's what the scriptures teach us. We've seen over and over the importance of John and the deity of Christ. The most, I think the most compelling is John 8, 58. He tells the Jewish leaders, before Abraham existed, before Abraham was, I am. That, that, that disclosure of who God is, it goes back to Moses and the burning bush. They knew what he meant. They picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. We see Jesus clearly in John. We've seen it so many times. I'm not going to go there. Of him being deity, one with God, the Father. Now, Today we're talking about the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, because Jesus does. He's ending a four-part section about the Trinity. Let, let me give you a couple of verses about the Trinity that we see all three works of the Trinity in the New Testament. Matthew 28, Jesus says, baptize them, make disciples, go into the world, make disciples, and what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that him putting that collectively together speaks about the Trinity, about the triunity of God? Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of Lou. That would be a problem, wouldn't you think? It's Trinity. We already know that. We, we, we go past those verses quickly, but in order to equate those three together, God is he's talking about the Trinity. Jesus' baptism. We see the Son of God being baptized, the Spirit, the heavens opened. The heavens opening is, a, is, a, is an analogy or at least a picture of God coming down. It's the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus, and then the Father speaks. This is my beloved Son, I am well pleased with him. Even verses like 1 Corinthians 12, 4 speaks of the Trinity. Listen to this verse. Now there are varieties of gifts, talking about the gifts of the Spirit, but the same Holy Spirit. Varieties of gifts, same Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord Jesus Christ. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all. Paul's talking about the Trinity. One in essence, three in persons. Corinthians ends, 2 Corinthians, Paul ends this. Now just listen, we're talking about Trinity, right? Chapter 13, verse 14, 2 Corinthians. May the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of the Father and love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If they were not one in essence and deity, that would be blasphemy and idolatry. Look at our text, chapter 16, verse 14. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus speaking. The Spirit will glorify me. He will take what is mine, declare it to you. All that the Father is mine. I was bringing in the Father. The Holy Spirit will be in you. He will declare. He will, he will show forth my glory. He'll take what is mine. And now he says, all that the Father is mine. And I said, verse 15, that he will take, the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the work of the Trinity in revelation and inspiration. The Bible, the scriptures is clear, even in the original language, that the Holy Spirit is truly a person, not this impersonal force. We see the original Greek language, the word, holy, the word spirit, pneuma, is, is neuter. And what you would expect from a neuter noun would be a, 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 a non-neutered pronoun, a neutered pronoun to, to match it grammatically, but that's not what Jesus uses. He uses a masculine pronoun. He the Holy Spirit. Very clear in the Greek. He's a person, not some force. There's no other way to understand that. He's referring to a person. So far in John 1, we see this Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus at his baptism, descending. And John says, you know what? When I see the Spirit coming down, I'll know that that's the Son of God. John 1. In John 3, he's what? The agent of new birth. When Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, he says, listen, just being in a right, you think you're in a right relationship because you're a Jew, you have the law, you're some morally good guy, but guess what? Unless you've been born again, unless you have been rebirth, renewed and have a rebirth by the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He, he's the agent of new birth. In John 4, Jesus at the woman at the well, he says, there's a day, it doesn't matter where you are, what God's looking for is worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. Remember that? It's, it's the Holy Spirit of quickening and awakening and opening our, our heart and our eyes and our spirit, awakening our spirit to worship and to, empowered by the Spirit. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. John chapter 7, it is the Spirit coming after he was raised from the dead. Jesus says, it will be like streams of living water flowing from within us. John 14, Jesus promises the Spirit will be with you forever. He is called the spirit of truth. He will dwell within you. He will be within you. It'll be so intimate. Will be his indwelling presence that he says, Jesus says this, when the spirit indwells you, you'll know that I, as person, only a person could say that, I am in my father, person, and you are in me and I in you. John 14, 26, the father will send the spirit in my name. He will teach you all things bringing to remembrance the things that I've said to you. The Holy Spirit will be the author of this book, recalling what Jesus said to his disciples. John chapter 15, 26, Jesus said, I will send the Spirit and he will bear witness. There's a witness that he is bearing, testifying to about me. The context is the hatred of the world. The Holy Spirit will empower you. He will come and he will not only set you on mission, but he will prepare you for opposition. And one last thing. Very important. God the Holy Spirit, because God the Holy Spirit is a person, a living person, he can, we can get to know God personally and communicate with him freely in Christ. If he were an inanimate object or an impersonal force, there would be no hope of personal relationship. He, the Holy Spirit, is a personhood. In Scripture, it says that he has intellect, again, emotion, a will, self-awareness, and self-determination. That's right in Scripture. You want to know where? I'll tell you. He has a will. Acts chapter 13. This is what it says. While they were praying, while they were worshiping, excuse me, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. He spoke. Forces don't speak. Winds don't speak. He said to be our teacher. He gives us commands. Acts chapter 8. The Spirit said to Philip, go to that chariot. He can even be grieved. He has emotion. The Bible says that do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He can be lied to. Peter, chapter, Acts 5, Peter said to Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a portion to yourself? He is omniscient, 1 Corinthians 2. He is eternal, Hebrews 9. He is omnipresent, Psalm 139. We are to obey and honor him, Psalm 5111. A mere force could not possess personhood and these eternal attributes that God has, that the Spirit has. I mean, we didn't even get into the spiritual gifts. Okay? God is one, undivided, one in essence, three in persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is teaching, if you want to know about the Trinity, read John 14, 15, and 16 several times. Get in your prayer and read it. You'll see subordinate roles. You'll see the mission of the work of God. In John 14 through 16, particularly, it's all throughout Scripture. So our text this morning, we'll get into it, and I won't keep you till dinner. You need to know that. Is there a mystery? Yes. God is one. We worship one God. Monotheistic. One God. Numerical in persons who has a will and intellect, a person of self-awareness, as one God on mission, Father sends the Son, the Son didn't die on the cross. The Father sent the Son to die on the cross. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit. One God, three persons. Now let's look at our text. Number one, the sorrow of the heart. Look at you with me, chapter 16 now. Jesus just finished teaching his disciples that the world will hate them. They hated him, they will hate them. Not only the sinful people in the world, we said last week, but the world was, was the one that, that is set up. It's, it's, it's not just the people in the world, the rebellious sinners, but the world, it's systems. It's the way in which the world operates. It's anti-God, anti-truth, governed by evil. It's the, it's the thoughts and the beliefs and the worldviews. It's conduct is anti-God opposed to God. He told them that they will be able to withstand this hatred if they have love for one another. And by relying upon the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We see it at the end of chapter 15. Jesus says in the beginning of chapter 16 that he said these things to them because he was going, he wanted to help them not to fall away. And not for this hatred and this prosecution, persecution come upon them and they walk away from the truth of the gospel. He also said, I'm preparing you, look at chapter 16, the first couple of verses, that you will not, you will be ready for the excommunication that is about to take place, that, that, the, that you will be kicked out of the spiritual life of Israel. Chapter 16, verse 3. And the reason it says, look what it says, verse 2, they will put you out of synagogues, they'll kill you, they think they're offering service to God, verse 3, and they will do these things because what? They have not known the Father nor me. See the connection together? I'm trying not to do many sides right here, but let me just give you a quick side. In the shack, in the shack, what you find in the shack is the opposite of that. In the shack, the movie, Jesus tells Mac, who meets him at the shack, that Jesus walks every road, all religions. That's the complete opposite of what we learned in John. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me, but not in the shack. Totally different God. All right, sorry. I'll try not to let that happen too much. Verse four. I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, I'm gone, you'll be persecuted. You may remember I told you this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Well, why would he say that? Because Jesus, in his kindness and his grace toward them, took most of the brunt of the hatred of the world while they were ministering together. Jesus is the one who stood really and mostly in the opposition, the face of opposition, and he protected them while he was there. He's not going to be there anymore. Verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? Now, I've been tracking with us. We know that Peter, chapter 13, verse 36, said, Lord, where are you going? Thomas in chapter 14, verse 5, this all upper room discourse. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? So why is Jesus saying you don't ask? It seems like they asked twice. It seems like he's grieved over their, 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 their question, that their lack of question, but yet they asked. Don't be afraid of things like that, beloved. The scripture don't contradict itself. 
If you read something in Scripture like, oh, that, that sounds very different than something I've read, it's you that reading it, not the Scripture. When I first became a Christian, I read in 1 Corinthians, I, I, don't, I can't quote, I think it's in chapter 7 or 8. Paul says, I too think I have the Spirit of God. And I read that going, what? He doesn't know, he's asking, I, I think I have the Spirit of God? Until later on, as I began to study Scripture together, that's his sarcasm. There's sarcasm in Scripture, I love it. He's like, I, you know, he's telling them all things like, I think I have the Spirit of God too, like dummies. That's what it meant. I'm like, oh, I didn't really understand that at first. Now I understand. So you don't ask me now. I think what Jesus is saying is possibly two things. He's saying, I'm teaching you all this, and this is the time to ask that question, where are you going? Like, guys, now's the time. Sorrow has filled your heart, but nobody's asking me now. You asked me before, but you're not asking me now. That could be one possibility. The other possibility is Jesus knows that they weren't really interested when they asked the first two times. In fact, Peter asked him, where, where, you know, where are you going? And then immediately, Peter's worried about his own hide and says, I'll go with you wherever you go, I'll go. And Jesus is like, yeah, you'll deny me before the rooster crows. So he's quickly diverted from really asking, where are you going? I really want to know. You know, tell me where you're going. I'm not going to let you leave until you tell you didn't do all that. He was just worried about himself. So maybe Jesus is saying, you guys are so interested in yourself, you really don't. You're, 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 not, you're not understanding. You're not asking the question at the time you need to ask the question. But either way, we know that Jesus is grieved, that this 11 that he is talking to and sharing all this with aren't showing a greater interest, I think, at least, or greater excitement that the Father is calling the Son home. The Son will go home to the Father to glory. And the work of salvation that is being revealed to them at that moment what is happening has this historical implications concerning and surrounding his departure. Like, guys, get with the program. Verse 6, but because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. The disciples' grief, unfortunately, I think is largely concerned about themselves. Jesus is trying to, to awaken or, or at least trying to show his, his disciples, his fearful disciples, and show them or make them realize the spiritual resources that will be with them, that will be supplied to them. This, this power, this person of the Holy Spirit will come and it will be available for them. But their minds are so stuck on the immediate and the physical presence of Jesus in the midst of this hostility that they miss what Jesus is trying to say. Dr. Carson, I quote him a lot, he's got a great commentary on John. For those of you who think I just come up with this, I don't. I'm not that smart. Um, Carson challenges us here, and he says, you know, as we look at the rebuke, the light rebuke, and, and the instructions of Jesus, who, showing his disciples that they are really preoccupied with themselves, their own problems, and not being attentive on the Lord, we should really think through that, he says. And I think what he's challenging us is, you know, we're, we're so absorbed sometimes in our own lives and what's going on in our world that we not only... F- fail really to, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, as the Scripture tells us to do, but we also fail at that moment and that time to see the needs of others around us. He writes this. Christians today need to meditate long on this rebuke. Some branches of Christendom stress the believer's experience, the believer's privilege, the believer's blessing, the believer's faith, the believer's love, the believer's conduct. Of course, he says, true Christianity transforms the personality and can be richly described in the categories of personal experience. But who is more concerned to please Jesus and fulfill Jesus' desire than to please himself and fulfill his own desires? And the answer is me. Maybe you. The point is, sorrow sometimes is an opportunity for us I think, for, for us, to, uh, points to an opportunity for us to see our selfishness and see us wrapped in our own worlds and not the love, not, not, not how much we need to love and care for other people around us. We get absorbed in our own world. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about godly sorrow. He's talking about sin, but godly sorrow, which leads us to God and worldly sorrow, that's really about self. Worldly sorrow is caused when we lose something uh, we, we, we loss of something we want for ourselves, and it, it can be very self-centered. Not that all sorrow is, but it can be very, it, it kind of, sometimes it just weeps for itself. It, it fails to, to recognize uh, 
others. It's when we think we ought to get what we need or what we want, I should say, and maybe losing the approval of the world, maybe not having what the world offers us. Maybe we're coveting things and we're sorrowful for them. And sometimes it's very selfish. And selfish sorrow always turns inwards and it really drives us away from the provider, God our provider. It kind of drives us away from seeing his from his perspective, his sovereignty, his goodness, loving, caring for other people, and brings us many times deeper into sin. But God is patient and loving toward us, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, you idiots, you know, get your mind off of it. No, he continues, because, oh, I didn't have that verse up. All right, so you follow me anyway. Because he is the star of the heart, the sending of the Spirit, because he is sending his Spirit anyway, verse 7. I mean, you almost want to say, nevertheless, you know what? I'm not sending the Spirit. You guys are just not, not really worth it. No, he doesn't do that. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. There are times we think, you know what? I wish I was with Jesus, walking with Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? There's a time that's better. When the Spirit will come, the Scriptures will come. You'll have the New Testament. You know, particularly after the Great Reformation, we're going to be talking about that this year, 1517, Martin Luther. We have the true gospel that has been rediscovered, and, and there's so much writing, there's so much scholarly, beautiful, scholarly uh, uh, um, understanding. The Spirit will come. It doesn't, Jesus is not saying, listen, uh, the Spirit is not here. He's, he's still in heaven. Remember, he's God. Uh, He's not here, so unless I go, he's just going to stay somewhere hidden. The Spirit of God is everywhere, right? What Jesus is saying here, and and you need to pick this up, what Jesus is talking to is that if I go, the Spirit will come, and it will be the beginning of the end. He's talking eschatological. He's talking end times. The Jewish people know, and we should know from Scripture, that the sending of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit coming characterizes this new kingdom of God coming. The whole idea that the Spirit's going to come in this new way that it didn't happen in the Old Testament is is pregnant with this anticipation and the fullness of the Spirit. When you read last days in the New Testament, we're at the last days, it doesn't mean that Jesus is coming next week. I know a lot of people play on your feelings like that. The last days began when Jesus died, rose again, the Spirit was given. We're in the last days. Whether it's a week, a month, 5,000 more years. That's what last days mean. That's why you write, read in Scripture, we're in the last days. Well, it was 2,000 years ago. No, we're still in the last days. Because the Spirit was given, the kingdom has come in the sense of Christ the King has come and, and inaugurated the kingdom. That's what it means, last days. He says, the truth is I must go away. The Spirit won't come in this new way. But when he comes, you will experience him like ever before. What a great advantage it is of the Spirit coming. Look at verse 8. What's he going to do? The sending of the Spirit, look at verse 8. He will come, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, see me no longer. Verse 11, concerning judgment because the rule of this world is judged. Okay, let's take them one at a time. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, verse 8. Jump to verse 9. Concerning sin, he answers the question. He's going to convict the world concerning sin. What does that mean? Because they do not believe in me. See the connection? The sin of unbelief. We saw that last week. They they, they didn't believe the words. They didn't believe the works of Christ. This is the first time we see that the Holy Spirit, since Jesus has been teaching John, the work that the Spirit is going to do in the world, in this rebellious, ungodly world, he will come. Now, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, the Greek word for Holy Spirit or helper is advocate. It has overtones of, of, of legal counselor. It's someone who comes alongside you, who is for you and by you, who speaks truth to someone or something that you need as legal overtones. We see that here because the world, the word convict, I hopefully you have that in your Bible. That's the right translation. can be translated to prove guilty. It has to do with a prosecutor and a judge. It is proving something to be wrong. It is convicting that which is guilty, okay? Sometimes as Christians, 
and I do it too, we use the word convicted. I feel convicted. When we sin, we feel bad. And by the way, we should feel bad when we sin. It drives us to the cross. But that word convicted, I feel convicted, if you take that same word and you bring it to a courtroom, it takes on a whole different nuance, does it? The trial has been heard, the evidence has been done, and now the, re- the verdict has been rendered. Convicted. Done. That's the word here. Trial's over, verdict is, it's not so much an inward feeling, it is convicted. You've been placed alongside the law, you've been found guilty. Okay? That's the sense. When he comes, when he, the Spirit of Christ comes, the Spirit of God comes, he will convict the world. That is, he is to prove, he is to prove it guilty by producing definite evidence regarding the guilt of the world before the cosmic throne of God. That's the work of the Spirit. And it's primarily done through the preaching of his word, through the scriptures, Leslie Newbegin, he's a British theologian, missiologist, says this, we see that the Spirit is not the domesticated auxiliary of the church. He is the powerful, he is the powerful advocate who goes before the church to bring the world under conviction, end quote. The basic sin, this, this conviction that the, the world sees, the sin, is its self-centeredness and its, 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 its failure of refusal to believe in Christ. Leon Morris points out rightly that the Spirit does it, convicts in two senses. One, it secures the verdict of guilty against the world. And in the second place, the Word convicts non-believers to come to faith in Christ. When we believe on the Lord Jesus, we are convicted about our sin. And, and the Spirit convicts, he says, the individual sinner's conscience. Otherwise, people would never come to see themselves as sinners, end quote. It's convicting the world. Guilty. I need a Savior. Jesus says he'll convict of sin, of unbelief, and that we're far away from God. And as harsh as that may be, guilty, it's actually the grace of God. If you sense conviction and you're not a believer, that's the word convict, because as a believer, conviction takes on a different meaning. It's just just we're being disciplined by the Lord who loves us and died for us and rose for us. But if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're convicted because you know you're not God and you know that you have sinned, You know that you have done things that violate the will of God. You know that you're not perfect. That conviction, if you're not a Christian, will lead you to repentance. He wants to lead you to the place of admitting and confessing the verdict of guilt. Jesus says he will do that. And what's interesting about the scripture, and I'll just give you two places, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 7. The Spirit is given, Pentecost happens, Peter gets up and preaches. It's the word of God being preached because God uses not just the spirit in an inward sense, but people to proclaim the word, show Jesus, love people, point to Jesus, proclaim his word, proclaim the gospel. Peter gets up and preaches in John chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter two, and it says when he got done, they were cut to the heart and they said, we want forgiveness. How do we be saved? And thousands of people come to faith. Acts chapter two. Get to Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches the message, the same gospel, and they were convicted. It says they were enraged. They grounded their teeth, they gritted their teeth, and then they took them out and stoned them to death. See that? One soft towards God, but either way, the the Spirit comes and convicts the world, found guilty. Number two, verse eight, he will convict the world concerning righteousness. Sin, now righteousness. Verse 10, Concerning righteousness, why, Lord, teach us? Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. He says, I am leaving and and the righteousness of God, the person of Jesus Christ, is going. He is the righteousness of God. He is the perfect and holy one. He never committed a sin. He was totally perfect in deed and in motive. He's going. The Spirit now is going to come and do that. The world is found guilty and prosecuted on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. But I also think, because Jesus says, I'm going away, I think that has something to do, we'll see at the end of the book, or, or you know of, the ascension. When, when Jesus rises from the dead, death can't hold him, and then ascends to the Father, the fact of his ascension means, at least one, means a couple of things, but that God has accepted him, and accepted his sacrifice. 
In fact, it says that when he ascended, he is seated where? At the right hand of the Father. He's vindicated. He returns home. The righteousness, in other words, is not only demonstrated while on earth, but because God highly exalts him, receives him back in glory, seated at the right hand, given the name which is above every name, is proof, more proof, that the verdict of guilt has been rendered to the world. He is the truth. And if we ever want to get into the presence of God, we cannot go in our own righteousness because the Bible says that our righteousness is but filthy rags. We need imputed righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ to be counted to our account. That's another thing the Reformation has brought back, the truth of the righteousness of Christ. It's alien to us, but is given to us by faith and accounted to our record. He gets our sin. We get his righteousness. That's the gospel. When you believe in Christ, you can't enter the presence of God on your own. We stand condemned in our sin, but Jesus was condemned in our place. And we need the righteousness of Christ. And he gives it to us by faith. Number three, and he will come, he will convict the world concerning what? Judgment. Verse 11. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is, is already really, judged. So the guilty verdict did not apply simply to the antagonistics of Jesus in his day. John saw this greater and bigger spiritual picture that the evil didn't working in the world, the prince of this world, Satan himself, has, has been judged, convicted. He could have entered into uh, and convinced Judas to betray him. He can provoke and instigate the people who hated Jesus. But the cross, the empty tomb, the ascension teaches us and shows us the prince of this world is already judged. Colossians 2. And you, brothers and sisters in Christ, were dead in sin and trespasses. The uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, you couldn't see. But God made you alive together with him, forgiving your sins, canceling the record of debt that all of us had standing against his legal demands. We have violated God's law. He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. He he disarmed, it says, the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them in Christ. So here's the argument John's saying. Listen, if, if God has overpowered and judged the most powerful outside of him, evil force in the universe, do we really think we're going to be outside the judgment of God? I don't care what the shack tells you. One more diversion. God does not judge, he says. Papa, he's called. She's called, actually. It's a woman. Does not judge. Okay, well, just throw your Bible in the garbage. The Holy Spirit convicts the world that there's such a thing as judgment. And it's proved by the fact that Satan has been judged and the power of Satan has been broken at the cross. One of the reasons that the Holy Spirit does this is to bring us to repentance. Again, I need God. I need salvation. I'm under the judgment of God. I'm in alliance and allegiance with Satan. I need rescue. I need redemption. I need deliverance. I need pardon from God. And the world hates that. And the world thinks that we're immune to doing what we want and think we can do what we want without judgment. That's a lie. Peter tells us that God has kept, stored up, and destruction and judgment of the ungodly. But, he says, beloved, God's not slow to fulfill his promise, but he's patient. Not wishing that anyone should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away and roar. And the bodies, the heavenly bodies will burned up and dissolved in the earth. And the works that all that's done will be exposed. Do not look at the kindness of God as, as not judgment coming. He's kind toward you. And maybe you're here this morning and you keep putting it off. You keep putting it off. You keep putting it off. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You will pay for your sins. Judgment will come. Or Christ in love Pay them for you. Much better to have Jesus pay it for you. Amen? And finally, the substance. I will have said these things to you, but you couldn't bear them. The spirit of truth comes. This is such an important verse. 
Undermark this in your Bible. Know this verse. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things are to come. Okay, you see that? Things to come. And then he goes on to say, he will glorify me. He'll take what is mine and declare it to you. Disciples were just not getting it all. Can't blame them. They just, there was a time the Spirit's going to come. He's going to share and, and open their eyes to the things that they could not grasp. Even in John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days and raise it up. And they're like, really, how can that happen? And then if you read, it says they didn't understand what was going on until after he rose from the dead. Jesus comes on a donkey in chapter 12 and Instead of a war horse, they wanted a king, a conqueror now, and it says they didn't understand these things until after. You see that over in John. He's like, the spirit of truth is going to come. You're not going to understand it all right now, but he's going to come, spirit of truth. We talked about that last week. He speaks the truth about eternity, about God, and all the other things he speaks the truth about. And he will guide you. I know you're fearful. I know you're sorrowful, but he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he, he will speak, and he will declare the things for you to come. He will be your guide. Have you ever been to a place that you've never been before, maybe in Europe or someplace far away, England, wherever, in Rome, we went to Rome, and you're walking around, you're seeing all the buildings. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And you can spend three days. And then you go with a guide. (laughs) Then you really see the place, right? Because you have no clue. That building was this, and that happened in World War II, and the holes in that building, like, ah, yeah, this all, you know, that's a guide. Because... We see, but we don't really see. He will guide you into all truth. It's not, I, I believe primarily he's talking about the New Testament, the scriptures. In fact, he says things to come may be the, the epistles, the revelation. Primarily it's the scripture, but the spirit still guides us today into all truth. We ask God, show us, empower us, help us to see the gospel, verse 14, he will glorify me, masculine pronoun, take what is mine and give it to you. The Holy Spirit, now catch this, is Christocentric. Christ-centered, the Holy Spirit does not call attention to himself, but to Jesus Christ. He does not lead us to emphasize or glory in our experiences, but on Jesus When people are persistently and constantly pointing to the experience, to the Spirit, to the Spirit, to the Spirit, they're not filled with the Spirit. He says he will take what is mine and he will glorify Christ. That's what it says. That starts there. That's the substance. That's the essence. That's the the, the bottom line of the work of the Spirit. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me. Dr. Carson again, nothing brings more glory to our exalted Lord Jesus than his followers to become steeped in all truth concerning him. Glory comes to Jesus as the truth of the gospel are established in the lives of men, end quote. Verse 15 to close. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, we see the Trinity of God. We see, look, to reject the Trinity is to reject Scripture. To reject the Trinity, to reject Scripture, to reject what Jesus teaches, what the Father and the Son is trying to teach us through the Spirit of God. He is collaborating. So let me end this way. Give me two more minutes, and this is very important. There's an awful lot of ideas about who God is. There's an awful lot of concepts and ideas about who we are as people. Jesus Christ, listen, answers both those questions. You see, an abstract God will not do because we are people with personhood, intellect, emotion, self-awareness. We are created in the Imago Dei. We need to be loved. We need to be accepted. We need to be rejoiced over. We need to have value and dignity. And that can never happen outside of the personhood of God. Abstract God and ideas of God and concepts of God will not do. That's what other religions give. That's what other philosophies give you is a God of ideas. An abstract God, but not Christ. According to Colossians, Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God. Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Second Corinthians says he's Light that shines the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want God to be real to you, the Holy Spirit does not just take abstract ideas and makes them real. He reveals the person of Christ, the God-man. That's the spirituality. That's what our souls long for. 
And we come to read the scriptures. We come to see Jesus saying, I will never leave you. I, person, I will never leave you. We hear him saying, I died for you so you could be eternally forgiven, loved, valued, accepted, sung over, rejoiced in. That's the way the Holy Spirit will make it real to you. That's the way to see him. That's the way he wants to deal with our wandering heart. Looking, on the, looking him on the cross, Father, forgive them. Seeing the empty tomb, seeing his ascension. Have you ever been so moved by the love of the gospel, the love of God, that tears flow? You have to pull over. If you say no, maybe it's because you are seeking after an abstract idea of God and not the person of Christ. He's not an idea, he's a person. And the Spirit's job is to come and show you Jesus so that you can have life. You'll become the person who really knows love by seeing what Christ has done. The substance, the real substance of the Holy Spirit is him saying, see the glory, the beauty, the majesty, the incalculable worth of the man Jesus Christ, the God-man. If the Holy Spirit is working in your life, and I hope and pray he is, He'll be revealing Christ. He'll be exalting Christ. He'll be glorifying Christ. And you'll be telling others of his glory. Is the Holy Spirit progressively guiding you into all truth? Is he revealing Christ as you study his word? Are you understanding more and more deeply the truths of scriptures that are centered on Christ and the gospel? And If you are, I pray you are your life increasingly will be God-centered, Christ-centered, Christ-glorifying. If you've never come to Christ, today's the day. Don't let the conviction of the Spirit, sin, righteousness, and judgment. You have sin, you're not gonna be righteous, judgment awaits. But if you trust in Christ, he died for your sin. His righteousness will cover you and you'll escape judgment because he died in your place. Father, thank you for this, your word, your teaching us such viable and important truths. Father, we pray for those who may not know you this morning right now. The conviction of the spirit, they will turn from their sin and trust in you. They'll be clothed with your perfect record. Escape judgment. And Father, for those of us who do know you and love you, help us to know more of you. Help us to be more gospel-centered, more in love with Jesus each and every day as we see one God, eternal, co-equal in the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.